0: I'm excited this morning, church. We are jumping into a brand new series called "Life in the Arena," when Obedience means defiance." And what we're going to be looking at over the next six, uh, uh, excuse me, over the next several weeks, as we kind of dive into this, is what it looks like when we walk in obedience to God and in obedience to His word, but that leads to defiance toward the world. So that's kind of what we're going to be looking at, because here's the reality. As Christians, following Jesus in a broken world, like we live in, is going to come at a cost. Amen? It comes at a cost to follow Christ and to be obedient to Him. And we kind of came by this title by remembering all of those who, uh, in the city of Rome, were marched into the Colosseum, and they were... Uh, They died a martyr's death, and they were put to death in that arena because they would not deny Jesus, and they would not stop preaching the gospel, even though it meant they were going to die, and they died by the hundreds and the hundreds, and so that's why we've called this uh, life in the arena, and their obedience, the obedience of those Christians, those early Christians, meant defiance that's how their obedience was lived out and in this series we're going to be looking at some of the great heroes of our faith some of our favorite people in the bible and looking at how their obedience to god and their unwillingness to yield or to deny jesus cost them came to them at a very high cost and here's the reality all over this world all over this world we see an increasing hostility toward christianity don't we do you see it all over the world And globally, we see Christians uh, dying for their faith in record numbers. Now, here in the West, it's a little bit different. While we don't see people dying for their faith as much. What we do see is an intentional marginalizing of Christianity, pressing out to the margins of our culture. And the days of tolerance where you can have a biblical worldview and take hold of the name of Jesus and carry that banner proudly, the days of tolerance for that are coming to an end. We see it everywhere that we look. You see it in businesses, that are being sued because they won't forfeit the biblical standard they have of how they practice their business. They're being sued. You see it in um, men and women who lose their jobs because either they won't participate in what is ungodly or they won't relent from lowering the standard of holiness God has called them to and they lose their jobs. You see it in the silencing of people, uh, students and people all over through social media who are shamed into not speaking up and not sharing their faith and speaking the name of Jesus. You see people being um, persecuted for their faith. One of the ways this was evident to me um, over the last couple of weeks, and Pastor Todd pointed this out and it was just something I hadn't noticed until I started looking at it, but Oral Roberts University for the first time in a very long time, made the NCAA tournament this year. Anybody watch the NCAA tournament, right? Would you people get your life together? Seriously. (laughs) It's an incredible athletic event that's super exciting. I cannot believe me and four people enjoyed that tournament. Holy moly. Okay. Anyway, it's basketball. You take a round ball, you fill it with air, you dribble, you shoot it. Sometimes it goes in. All right. So this is the sport I'm talking about. And um, Oral Roberts University, which is a Christian university, had are a Division One school, Division One athletics, and their team had played well enough to get invited into the tournament. Well, there were uh, news agencies, um, there was a huge amount of pressure on social media, there was a petition that was started to put on the NCAA for them to disinvite Oral Roberts University simply because of the worldview they represent. For no other reason, the NCAA was being pressured to disinvite this university to participate in the tournament because the biblical worldview that they hold was considered intolerant. It's a very real thing, a very real thing. And look, while cultures change and times change and the, the, the tactics and the... Um, tools that the enemy uses to intimidate and to nullify and to minimize the voices of the people of God are still the same. If you want to know what the ultimate goal of the enemy is in in battling the, in, in putting us into the arena, his ultimate goal is this, to mute the gospel by muting the voice of God's people. That's the goal of the enemy, that he would mute the gospel message by muting the voice of God's People. And listen, following an historical, biblical Christianity. What is that? Simply holding up God's word as what gives you your worldview on all issues. Affirming Jesus as um, the primary authority in your life and Jesus as the only means of salvation. If you just do those things, hear me. You will live your life in the proverbial arena. You will live your life, and there will be a cost. Your obedience will mean defiance. Now listen, before we dive into the deep end of the pool here, there's something I think is very, very important that we make clear. When I talk about the oppression of biblical beliefs, and I talk about a culture really working to minimize the gospel and mute the voice of God's people. If you immediately begin to think conservative, liberal, Republican, Democrat, you've already missed the point. You've already missed the point. There is no political system that will do for the gospel what God has already empowered the gospel to do. This isn't, we don't need to be thinking thoughts. We've got to get America back. What we've got to get is the gospel front and center in the hearts of God's people. That's what we need. The answer is not... I got to get the right political guy with the right political views in office. The answer is in the hearts of the church, we got to get lit for the kingdom of God and we can't bend away from it. That's the answer. That's the answer. How do I know that that's the answer? Because in the history of God's church, the seasons of thriving were in seasons of oppression Oh, we don't want to hear that. Tell me something else. Please tell me that ain't true. That's the truth. (laughs) The seasons when the church thrived, when the gospel spread like wildfire, when people were engaged and filled with the Holy Spirit and unrelenting in their verbalizing the gospel and sharing their faith and seeing the kingdom of God grow and spread, those were the same seasons of insane oppression massive persecution. And one of the reasons, I read no fewer than four articles this week about the decline of of the church in America. No fewer than four. That were written within the last two weeks. Do you want to know why that isn't happening here? Because we have whitewashed the gospel. And we are just fine living very quiet, normal lives. And so, our American culture has already minimized. Do you see what I'm talking about? Yeah. Yeah. So, I don't want us approaching this as, we're going to get America back to the good old days. Now, what we need is to get the church of God oriented toward gospel courage. That is what we need. And so, having set that aside... Uh, We worked through that. We're going to be in one of my favorite books, looking at some of my favorite people in all of the Bible, and that is the book of Daniel. And we're going to be in chapter one and chapter three, primarily in chapter three, looking at the story of these three young Hebrew men and the fiery furnace. But we're going to start in Daniel chapter one. You guys know these three Hebrew guys that I'm talking about, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Um, just so you have some context, the book of Daniel is written uh, out of a time when uh, a tyrant king by the name of Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, which is around 605 BC, invaded Israel, invaded Judah, and took most of them captive and hauled them off back to Babylon. And the Babylonians had a very unique thing that they would do to try and eradicate a culture, right? They had a very unique thing they would do. They wouldn't just go in and kill everybody and and destroy all of their of, their places of worship. It wasn't that. What they would do is they would try to eradicate the culture of the people they conquered, listen, by assimilating that culture into a Babylonian culture. That's what they tried to do. So in other words, when you were conquered by the Babylonians, rarely did they say, Oh, you can't worship that God. Often what they said was, Oh, now just worship ours too. And they would graft these cultures in with the long-term goal of eradicating the old culture and replacing it with the Babylonian culture. And they had five steps that they would work through. Five kind of tiers that they would work these conquered people through ultimately to have them living as Babylonians. The first one was this. I want you to, we're going to work through these five, and I want you to tell me if any of these sound familiar to you. The first one was normalization. Normalization. If you look in Daniel chapter 1, verse 3 and 4, Nebuchadnezzar has conquered them, he's hauled them off. And now the king commanded Ashpenza, his chief eunuch, to bring some of the people of Israel, both of the royal family and of nobility. Youths without blemish of good appearance and skillful in all the wisdom, endowed with knowledge, understanding, learning, and competent to stand in the king's palace. So, what they would do is they would take the cream of the crop of the culture. They would take the most influential, the most affluent, the best, and the brightest. They would bring them in to the king's court and and begin to put them into Babylonian culture and, and expose them the Babylonian culture and they would do this long enough where things that used to be abnormal would simply become normal. Does that sound familiar to anybody in here? So there was this normalization. Here's the other thing they would do. Indoctrination. Look at Daniel chapter 1. Look at the end of verse 4 and kind of the end of verse 5. It says, and they would teach them the literature and language of the Chaldeans. And they were to be educated for three years and at the end of that time they were to stand before the king. Now they're being educated in Babylonian culture and taught to think like a Babylonian and have this worldview, and there was this reprogramming of the way they thought. And so, um, and once they had indoctrinated them and gone through those three years of Babylonian education, they would then send them out back to rule over their people, but now with a Babylonian worldview. So there was this indoctrination. Then you see assimilation. Look again at verse 4 and 5. They would teach them the literature and the language of the Chaldeans. And the king assigned them a daily portion of the food that the king ate and of the wine that he drank. Now they were being grafted in into the Babylonian lifestyle. And they would change their language so they wouldn't get to speak their old language anymore. They would change their diets. They would change how they spent their time, the way they just their daily. Rhythms in all of this was slowly, perpetually moving them away from who they were toward becoming a Babylonian. And then probably the one that was their greatest trick. This was often the one that broke the back of the conquered people. It was one called confusion. Look at verse 6 and 7. Among these were Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah of the tribe of Judah. And the chief of the eunuchs gave them names, gave them, he's about to give them new names. Daniel, he called Belshazzar, Hananiah, he called Shadrach, Mishael, he called Meshach, and Azariah, he called Abednego. Why does that matter? Why was it such a powerful tool to change their names like that? Because if you came out of the Hebrew culture, your name was what connected you to your community of faith and to the covenant community. Your name was a part of your identity and reminded you who you were in relationship to God. I want you to think about this for a moment. These three young men, their names had meaning. Hananiah meant Yahweh has shown grace. That's what his name meant. Michel meant who is what our God is. That's a great name. Who is what our God is? That's what his name meant. And then Azariah meant Yahweh has helped us. So each of these young men were given names at birth that grafted them into their covenant community, kept them locked in and told them who they were in God. And now those names have been taken away and they're given new names of Shadrach, Meshach and Abednego. Listen to this. All three of those now Babylonian names have a reference to a Babylonian God in them. So the name that connects them to their God is removed, and now they can only be called by a name that references a Babylonian God. And these are young men who knew God's command was to have no other gods before him. You see how powerful of 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 a tool that was in breaking the back of people. Now, before we get to the last one, when I look at this, We see this in our context. We see these things in our context. The the silencing of Christianity being a slow, methodical, (coughs) deliberate thing. We see normalization. Images of ideologies, images of lifestyles and values that are pushed on us through social media or movies or television or sports or other forms of entertainment How many things do you see now on social media or on a screen of some sort that you used to call abnormal and now you don't even see it that way anymore? It's just normal. There's a normalization. You see it in indoctrination. We're seeing a culture that uses essentially any means necessary to train and retrain the way we think and the way we processing the world. You see it at schools and universities. You see it again in media and television. They are attempting and succeeding in teaching us how to think, how to feel, and how to process the world. I see assimilation. We're teaching people not only to embrace, we're being taught not only to embrace another worldview, we're being assimilated to become champions of it. Think about this for a moment. We're being assimilated to become champions of a worldview that is not biblical. And if you don't, you're left on the outside. If you don't, listen, you're the problem. Am I wrong? I'm trying to figure out why it's so quiet in here. Am I wrong? It's true. And I think we're seeing confusion as well. No longer are you seen as a good person or a bad person based on the quality of life you live and how you love others and how you serve others. You're seen as good or bad based on whether or not you embrace this worldview and this culture or whether or not you reject it. Because if you embrace it, you are grafted in, you're included, you're a good person. And if you don't, you are intolerant, you are judgmental, and you are a bad person. And that's this... Thing that we see. And then the last step is persecution. That's the last step in the Babylonian kind of tiered way that they would reprogram people. Because if they ultimately didn't accept this worldview, if they refused to assimilate, then they would be removed from position, their jobs would be taken away, their homes would be taken away, their families would be put into more slavery, and they would ultimately be killed. But the same measure of persecution is all around us. Yeah. You can lose your job. You can lose your livelihood. We see this. You are, there is an active effort to silence the voice of God's people. And this level of persecution, this is what Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego were facing in Daniel chapter 3. So flip over. Get to Daniel chapter 3. Let me catch you up on the story. So 605 BC, Nebuchadnezzar has conquered everything at this point. He's hauled God's people off into slavery. And in chapter three, he builds a massive golden image, enormous. And that image included, we, but biblical scholars think it probably included um, images of Babylonian gods as well as images of Nebuchadnezzar because he thought of himself as a god. So now you've got this golden image that's about 90 to 100 feet tall and about 10 feet wide at the base. And it has these images of Babylonian gods and images of Nebuchadnezzar all over it. He plants it right in the middle of a valley so that it can be seen no matter where you are in the city, so that you have to walk by it, whether you are coming and going. And he sets up this thing where he draws in all the important people, all the movers and shakers, if you are under his rule and reign, then when you hear his musicians begin to play, he says, everybody under my rule and reign, whether you were born Babylonian or conquered by us, you have to fall down and worship that. You have to fall down and worship that image. But these three young men, who, by the way, when they were captured by Nebuchadnezzar and hauled off into slavery, were somewhere between 15 and 17 years old. That's how old my sons are. That's how old they were. Now this time they may be 19, 17, 18, 19, somewhere in there. And because these were young men who loved the Lord and who walked with God and were faithful to Him, bowing to that golden image was going to be a problem. And so they, like everyone else, they received the command. They knew what was expected. They heard the band play. Everyone else bowed down, but they didn't bow. And now Nebuchadnezzar finds out, and let's pick it up in verse 13. Then Nebuchadnezzar, in a furious rage, commanded that Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego be brought. So they brought these men before the king. Nebuchadnezzar answered and said to them, Is it true, O Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, that you do not serve my gods or worship the golden image that I have set up? Now, if you are ready, it's almost like, okay, maybe you guys just didn't hear the band. Maybe you hadn't stretched, and so your knees weren't ready to bend and get in the dirt. Now, if you're ready... When you hear the sound of the horn and the pipe and the lyre and the trigon and the harp and the bagpipe and every kind of music. By the way, if you ever get to worship to bagpipes, it's just a fantastic worship instrument. Um, When you hear all this stuff, if you're ready to fall down and worship the image that I have made, well and good. But if you do not worship, you shall immediately be cast into a burning, fiery furnace. And who is the God who will deliver you out of my hands? Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego answered and said to the king, O Nebuchadnezzar, we have no need to answer you in this matter. Whew. If this be, these, are, these are 18 and 19-year-old men before the king. If this be so, our God whom we serve is able to deliver us from the burning fiery furnace, and he will deliver us out of your hand, O king. But if not, be it known to you, O king, that we will not serve your gods or worship the golden image that you have set up. Church, if we are going to stand with courage in the arena, if we are going to raise up children who can stand with courage, think about the world that you inherited and think about the world that your children and your grandchildren will inherit. Are we raising up children and grandchildren who can stand in the arena? If we're going to do this, then, then what do we do? When we think about what it means for us as disciples of Jesus to live in this kind of culture with this kind of radical obedience, obedience that is very much going to mean defiance, how do we do that? When we look at these three heroes, I think we see three responses they had to this moment of crisis that are going to help us. Here's the first one. Ready? For Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, there was no compromise. There was no compromise. If you look at verse twelve, we didn't read that while ago, but look at Daniel chapter three, verse twelve. So they didn't bow, and some jealous people went and tattled on them, right? Which is what's going to happen. And here's what they said: "There are certain Jews whom you have appointed over the affairs of the province of Babylon, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And these men, O King, pay no attention to you. They do not serve your gods or worship the golden image that you have set up." They didn't compromise. Right. We see this incredibly dramatic story in Daniel three, this incredibly dramatic moment. But what's important is that we understand this moment of courage isn't just in Daniel chapter three. We see this in the character of these men and their strength to obey and to define the king. We see this from the moment we meet them in Daniel chapter one. From the moment that we're introduced to these three men, we see them walking in faithful obedience to God. If you look at Daniel chapter 1, verse 8, Daniel and Shadrach and Meshach and Abednego, they are there, they are slaves, and now the king comes and he says, I'm gonna give you the food I eat and the wine I drink because I want uh, to have the very best of this culture and I want to use you however I wanna use you. And look at verse 8 of chapter 1, it says, but Daniel along with these three men, resolved that he would not defile himself. That he wouldn't do that with the king's food or with the wine he drank. When they were presented with an opportunity to compromise in something as small as what they ate, it says they wouldn't defile themselves. They wouldn't do it. This moment of radical obedience at the golden image in the, in the face of the fiery furnace, this moment of obedience was not an anomaly for Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. It was, boy, it was the fruit of a life of obedience. It was, the, it was the fruit born out of walking in daily obedience, whether what I'm doing is seen or unseen, public or private, known or hidden. When I am walking in obedience, it is doing something in me. And what it is doing is it is preparing me for the greater moment of obedience God is leading me toward. And listen, here's the thing we gotta rest in. If we aren't obedient in the little things, we're gonna miss the big one. We're gonna miss the big moments if we're not walking in obedience to God in the things that nobody sees but God, do we really believe we are going to have the courage to stand in the arena? This was not an anomaly for these men. They came to this moment Because they had lived a life that had been preparing them for this moment. There was a rhythm of obedience. And that rhythm of obedience in the little things prepared them and set their feet, set their shoulders. So that they didn't have to compromise when it mattered most. There's no compromise. Here's the second thing I think we see. We see a complete resolve. A complete resolve. Look at verse 16 of Daniel 3, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego answered and said to the king, O Nebuchadnezzar, we have no need to answer you in this matter. That's uh, that's brazen, folks. They weren't talking to some small government official with a little bit of power. Babylon was one of the two greatest nations on the planet at the time. It was Babylon and Assyria. Babylon was the greater of the two. making Nebuchadnezzar the most powerful man on planet Earth. And here are these three handsome 17, 18-year-old boys looking at him and going, I don't even have to think about this. I want you to notice what they didn't say. This is important. Nebuchadnezzar said, now if you're ready, I'm going to play this band again. And you see that image when you hear it this time. You better bow. Here's what they did Say, King, hold on just, just a minute. We really got to think about this. this. We don't know what to do here. This seems like a really important decision. We got to go pray about it. Could you tell the band to take a five minute break? We just don't know what we're going to do and we need some time to think about it. This wasn't a moment that required time to think. Here's why. They didn't need time to formulate an answer because they had already decided what the answer was. I want you to hear me long before that golden image was ever built. There was a foundation set in the heart of these young men that says, we do not bow to other gods. So before the image was ever built, the answer was, I'm not bowing. Before the thing was ever in the desert, ever in the valley, their answer was, we will not bow. There was a complete resolve So that when the image was built and the fire was lit and the threat was made and everybody else bowed down. That wasn't the moment they began trying to find courage and strength to obey. That was just the moment they displayed it. Carrie and I just made some decisions for our family and for our children long before our children were ever born. There were just values we were going to hold, rhythms we were going to keep as a family long before our children ever entered this world. One of those was um, whether I was serving in a church or not, nothing was going to compete with God's worship in God's church on a Sunday. It was just a a thing that we decided. Nothing's going to compete with God, His worship, and His church on a Sunday. It's not going to happen. No team, no hobby, no friends, no hangout, no fun activities, no school activities. Um, Sundays are going to belong to the Lord. Now, that, that decision was made before my children were born. Then after my kids were born, guess what? Life Came on. And as our culture started to do, they started um, having things that they should be going to do on Sundays. They had opportunity to be out of church, opportunity to hang out with friends, opportunity to go do this fun thing or go be a part of this team. And take, But w- when that moment came, we weren't trying to decide as a family, okay, are we going to let our kids go or should we, we really make them? We made that decision before they ever entered the world. Nothing touches Sunday that's the way our family was set up and that's what you see in the heart of these men that moment at the image of gold and staring into the mouth of that fiery furnace that wasn't the moment they started going man what do you think we should do guys I don't know that fire sure feels hot (laughs) no the answer was made before the image was built And I think often we miss those moments because we get into that moment where our faith is challenged and our biblical worldview is challenged and our connection in the name of Jesus Christ is challenged and our values of who we are as kingdom citizens are challenged. And because we haven't set a rhythm of obedience, because we haven't walked with complete resolve, it isn't until we're in the moment that we're trying to decide if God is really worth what it's gonna cost me to obey him. And so what starts to happen is one little compromise after another. A compromise of comfort, of convenience, of inclusion. A compromise because I'm afraid of being left out. One compromise after another. And we ultimately miss the opportunity to display the glory of God. (laughs) And with that, to declare the satisfaction we find in Him. But what we see in these men and what we are called to is complete resolve. Does God have that from you? Does he have that from you? So we see a no compromise. We see complete resolve. And we see an unwavering faith. Look at verse 17 and 18. I love these guys. They said, If this be so, if you really are going to throw us in that fire, if this be so, our God whom we serve is able to deliver us from the burning, fiery furnace, and he will deliver us out of your hand, O King. But if not, be it known to you that we will not serve your gods or worship the golden image that you have set up. There is an unwavering faith that God would deliver them. Now, let's just all own something. We have the perspective of looking back at this story and knowing God's going to come through for these guys, right? We know it. Guess what? They didn't know that. They didn't know if God was going to come through. They knew God could, and they hoped that he would, but they didn't have the convenience of perspective knowing that God was going to deliver them. And what we see is this unwavering faith in a God who is powerful enough to save them, but who they have set as sovereign over their lives, so that whatever God chooses to do with them, He can do. So I'm gonna ask you just a this is a hard question. It's a hard question for me. Let's just ask ourselves this. Does God have the freedom to do with you whatever he wants? Whatever he wants. Have you given that surrender to him that says, God, if my highest joy is found in your good plan for me, then I want to at first acknowledge that my plan is not best, yours is. Second, I have to acknowledge sometimes your plan, though it is good, is going to be hard. And third, I want to trust you through it. Can God do with you whatever He wants to do? Have you given Him that surrender? There was this unwavering faith. In verse 18, we see some of the most important Beautiful, challenging, hard words in all of the Bible to me. Three little words. You want to know what they were? But, if not. Whew. There was a faith here that trusted in the goodness of God, even when, listen, even when it didn't make sense to them. My heart would have wondered why I stood in obedience and was being threatened by the fire at all. God, why did you even bring me to this moment? But there was this faith that trusted in the goodness of God even when it didn't make sense. A faith that had established God as so supremely valuable that to have him was more important than saving their own lives. This was was a faith that trusted God whether he delivered them out of the fire or delivered them through it. And there's this this question that's resonating in my heart, and it's this. What if God has no intention of saving us from the arena? He he was about to let these three faithful, God-fearing, God-loving, God-only young men be thrown into a fire. What if... What if he isn't going to save us from the arena? Do we still trust him? God, you got my yes. I want to be a Romans 12, 1 and 2. I want to offer my body as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to you because this is my worship. I'm going to lay my life on this altar and you do with it whatever you want. How How do we get there? Can we, like Paul in Philippians 1, say, for me to live is Christ and to die is gain? If I live, I live to Jesus and I get Jesus, that's a win. If I die, I go to Jesus and I get all of him and that's a win. Are you in a place where you can say, I live a life that is the ultimate win-win, even if I'm standing in the arena, even if my obedience is costing me something, I still see it as a win-win, because if I'm alive, Jesus is with me, and if it kills me, I'm still with him. How do do I get there? How did Paul have that perspective? Where did that unwavering faith come from? I think it came from another letter that he wrote, Galatians chapter 2, verse 20. I have been crucified with Christ. And it is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And this life I now live in the flesh. I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself up for me. Does God have that surrender from you? Have you been crucified with Christ? Jesus used similar language when he called his disciples, didn't he? When he called them, what did he say? He said, I'm going to call you. But here's what it involves. Deny yourself. Take up your what? Take up your cross and then do what? So, boys, I'm about to call you to life in an arena. And he called those 12 and he said, you guys don't know this right now, but every single one of you is about to die a martyr's death. You don't know it, but I'm telling you, you got to deny yourself. you got to be crucified with me. Take up your cross and come follow me because what you've got to learn is that having life with me is more valuable than having life on your terms. Do you see Jesus as more valuable than having life on your terms? I want you to look at the end of the story. These men wouldn't bow to the image, Their obedience to God meant their defiance of the king, and Nebuchadnezzar has them bound and thrown into the fire. And look at what it says in verse 24. Then King Nebuchadnezzar was astonished, and he rose up in haste, and he declared to his counselors, Did we not cast three men bound into the fire? And they answered and said to the king, True, yeah, we did that. And he answered and said, But I see four men unbound." And they're walking in the midst of the fire, and they are not hurt. And the appearance of the fourth is like a son of the gods. And then Nebuchadnezzar came near to the door of the burning fiery furnace, and he declared, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, servants of the Most High God, come out and come here. (laughs) And then Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego came out from the fire, and the sastraps and prefects and the governors and the king's counselors gathered together, And saw, what did they see? That the fire had had no power over the bodies of these men. That the hair of their heads was not singed. Their cloaks were not harmed. And no smell of fire had come upon them. These cats didn't even smell like a campfire. (laughs) Nebuchadnezzar answered and said, Now hold on. Did these guys ask a question? Who was the last person that asked the question? Nebuchadnezzar. And what was his question? Who is the God who will deliver you out of my hands? And Nebuchadnezzar answered the question. Blessed be the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. I want you to notice three things and then we're going to be done. And you went, Pastor, didn't you already give me three points? You gave me five, then three, now three again. My gosh, my (laughs) hand's tired. (laughs) Just real quick. There are three things that we see when we stand in the arena and are obedient. It's the things we see happen for these three men, it's the things we can hold on to when God calls us to take our stand and it is this. One, Jesus is going to be present And the fourth looks like a son of the gods. (laughs) The great promise of obedience to God is that we get God. We get God himself. If your obedience to God is so that you can get the applause of men, you're missing it. No man crawled into the fire with them. But Jesus met them there. Jesus met them there. We get God. Jesus is going to be present. He's the one that says, I don't leave you. I don't leave mine. I'll never leave you. I'll never forsake you. Behold, I'm with you always, even until the end of this world. Even this world you will have trouble. But I leave you my peace that where I am, you're going to be with me. And I'm going to send you a comforter. He's called the Holy Spirit. You're not alone. Jesus is present. That's the first thing. Here's the second thing. People are changed when we stand in obedience in the arena. Blessed be the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Here is the heart of this tyrant king that all of a sudden is singing praises to the Lord God, Yahweh. People are changed. Why? Because where we are faithful to raise up the banner in the name of Jesus, God said, I'm going to draw all people. I'm I'm, I'm going to change some people. I'm going to change hearts. I'm going to change minds. I'm going to remove hearts of stone. We talked about last week. I'm going to give hearts of flesh. That's what I do when my people are obedient. Here's the last thing. When we stand in the arena, God is glorified. He's glorified. Nebuchadnezzar himself said, for there is no other God who is able to rescue in this way. That's his words. God's glory was put on full display in the lives of these men. Put on full display. Why? Because in our obedience, we create all that is necessary for God to be seen as preeminent and glorious and satisfying When I walk in obedience, no matter what it costs me, what I'm declaring to the world is I have found something in him that I can't find in trying to please you and bend to you and change the values that I'm called to live and bend my biblical worldview and forfeit the name of Jesus and watch what I shouldn't watch and say what I shouldn't say and laugh where I should cry and and mitigate and minimize sin. I don't do that. Why? Because I found something supremely satisfying in him. And he has changed my nature. Has God, has Jesus done that for you? Has he captured your heart in such a way that you have been radically made new? Not just made a little better. I'm talking about radically made new. And I want you to hear me. If that has not happened for you, God's word says you are separated from God. And you are bound to live eternity separated from him in hell. But Jesus says, I have come that you might have life and have it more abundantly. And while the wages of your sin might be death, I have a gift for you. It is the cross. I've died for that sin. And this gift that I've given is going to give you eternal life in me. Has Jesus done that for you? If he has, if he hasn't, that needs to happen today. What would prevent you from trusting in the God who loves you so much that he came and died for you? What would prevent you from that? If he has done that for you, my question is, are you living a life with a rhythm of obedience in the little things so that when the moment comes for you to stand in the big thing you're ready or would you have to confess I've got moments of compromise moments of forfeiting my integrity just there's just rhythms of that in my life so maybe this morning is a time of just confession and repentance and asking God to reorient your heart back toward what you know to be true, which is, like he, which is that he satisfies above everything else. I think for some of you, the next step of your obedience is to be baptized. I think there are more people in our church who have made Jesus the Lord of their life and nobody knows it. <laughs> You've not told anybody that there was a moment where you really did give your heart and life to Jesus and you know that he changed you, but you haven't been baptized since then. Listen, if that's you, you need to be baptized. You need to take that step of obedience. You need to graft into the family of God that way. Well, how do I do that? We're going to have a baptism, a a, a celebration day on April the 25th. We're just going to celebrate life change and what God has done. You need to let us know that needs to happen and be baptized on April 25th where we can celebrate what God has done in your life. So where are you and what does God need to do? I'm going to pray. We're not going to have a normal invitation. But if you need to make Jesus the Lord of your life, would you please, please come and grab me? Come and grab one of our staff. Come and grab someone you trust and let them walk you through, help walk you through that. If you just need to come pray, it's okay. You can come pray even between services. The life God has called us to live is going to result in having to stand obediently at great cost. What is the work God needs to do in your heart today to prepare you for that day? Father, I love you and I'm so grateful for your love for us. There's no one like you, Lord, And I love you, and I'm so thankful that you have loved us and given yourself for us. So, Father, help us to walk in obedience to you. Do a work in our heart that prepares us to stand in defiance when it means being obedient to the King of kings and the Lord of lords. In Jesus' name.